Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for June 16th, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast. This week, the show will deviate a bit from its usual appellate focus, taking a break from forecasting and reviewing rulings and regarding appellate best practices to take a look at some broader trends bearing on the legal trade and upon the schools that train people to occupy it. Today, our guest will revisit the fate of Woodyear Law School which announced in April that it would become the first ABA-accredited law school to close its doors. Our guests will offer differing reactions and perspectives on what forces best explain the school's eventual dissolution, the schools, said its current students will be able to complete their degrees. First, we'll hear from Frank Wu, professor at UC Hastings College of the Law, who applauds the decision as a rational and necessary response to what he views as fundamental structural changes in the legal job market, which have of late depressed significantly the number of law school applicants. Wu himself made a comparably controversial decision while serving as Hastings Dean in 2012 when, foreseeing the the fundamental changes he describes, he voluntarily reduced Hastings' 1-0 class by 25%. That move elicited surprise and some criticism, but since then, most law schools have voluntarily or involuntarily followed suit, shrinking 1-0 classes mostly in response to fewer applications. That problem of too few applicants for too many law schools, Wu says, made a school like Whittier's closure almost inexorable, and must drive other law schools to evolve and to rethink how they can remain viable in the shifting landscape. Our second guest, Stephen Diamond, professor at Santa Clara School of Law, who has also written on this topic, is less sanguine about Whittier disbanding. Diamond notes that legal job numbers are actually trending upwards, particularly in Orange County, where Whittier sits. He also worries that shutting a school composed of a majority of minority students will diminish access to the legal profession to diverse groups and overall diminish the diversity of the California State Bar. Above all, Diamond believes that the forces hampering law schools at present may well be cyclical, and that, therefore, Whittier's decision to close may be a short-sighted one. Before we get to my guest, let me first remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for listeners of the podcast. There's a short true-false test linked at the bottom of the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. And also before we speak to Professors Wu and Diamond, wanted to bring in our own Lyle Moran, a reporter in our San Diego office, who's covered the story quite intimately and really has had his ear on the ground to sense all these seismic shifts in legal education and legal employment. So now I bring you Lyle Moran. Glad to be joined now by Lyle Moran, our very intrepid reporter down in the San Diego Bureau who covers, among other things, legal education, law schools, and the State Bar of California. Lyle, thanks for jumping on the, the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brian. Okay, so you did a, a fair amount of coverage of Whittier Law School's closure, um, covered it from a lot of different angles and really spoke to lots of different folks with lots of different opinions. So I kind of wanted to get the synthesis of all that um, through you before we hear from a couple of our, our guests. Um, when you, you first heard of the news, Whittier announced this decision in April. I'd be curious to know sort of what some of the, the very first initial reactions were of the different folks that were involved, either stakeholders in the school or commentators or observers. Yeah, so for outside observers, there was some surprise in general that an ABA, American Bar Association accredited law school would be closing down because you just don't typically see that. But if there was going to be one of these schools to make this type of announcement, um, Whittier was certainly in the running to be that school. Um, on last July's bar exam, only 22% of its first-time takers on the California exam passed, and that was the lowest uh, passage rate among all the uh, top law schools in California. And 
the school has also struggled in terms of helping its graduates secure jobs. Um, in terms of its 2016 graduates, only about 30% of them secured uh, permanent full-time jobs that required passing the bar exam as of um, this spring. So they've struggled on that front. So they're indicators in terms of student performance and student credentials coming into law school have been poor, and their enrollment is also rapidly declined. I mean, that's a national trend in terms of fewer law school, um, fewer students attending law schools, but Whittier, back in 2010, they had 303 students enter. Um, as of last fall, 132 entered a 56% decline. So that type of enrollment loss is tough to sustain. Okay, so then maybe it would be fair to say that from a, a broad perspective, the announcement maybe wasn't a huge shock to folks, but I guess sort of more in a, a narrow sense. Had, had there been any rumblings that this was going to happen? Like, were there any sort of committees that were formed? I guess, had, had there been much of a warning that this was going to happen? So there were committees set up at Whittier to study um, this issue of whether the law school should be closed. And both a committee at Whittier College as, a, as well as a committee at the law school looked at the issue last year and they recommended against closure. And some faculty members after the closure announcement was made said, you know, this was one of the reasons they were taken aback is that faculty members on these committees had recommended that the law school stay open. Um, and even, you know, as of a couple months prior to the closure announcement, some faculty members said they were sure that the sale of the um, Whittier Law School land, like that would result in some money to help fund the law school and, you know, help with its future. So internally, while they knew the issue had been reviewed, they felt that the school was going to stay open and felt like they had a pledge from the Whittier College administration that they were going to do everything they could to make that happen and not close the school. Sure. Yeah, it did seem like a pretty quick turnaround between the selling of, of the, the land, which I guess you could could say evinced sort of a long-term plan, and then this uh, the closure announcement. Um, in terms of explaining this event, uh, you've given some detail as to sort of the, the broader forces that bear upon it in terms of uh, lower applicants numbers and, and worse bar performance and job number um, performance. Are those the, the general reasons that you get when you ask folks uh, that have been observing this, this story as to the, the principal causes, are there any other reasons that folks uh, might cite as to why this happened? Well, what we've seen nationally as well as in California is this interest in law school declining in recent years. And what um, groups like law school transparency and advocacy groups say has happened is that while, you know, enrollment has gone down, schools, in order to keep their doors open, have been accepting less qualified students than in the past. Um, Whittier's among that group. Um, you know, it's one of three schools in California that had been deemed extreme risk by law school transparency because of its entering class. And, you know, LSAT um, numbers are looked at to make these rankings. And, um, Whittier's first year class back in 2008 had a median 25th percentile LSAT score of 151. That fell to 144 last fall. Um, so at some point, 
when you're accepting less qualified students, they're not being able to pass the bar exam and become lawyers, it's tough to justify continuing um, to enroll students who are going to rack up very high debt. Um, Whittier also has reported to have the second highest like average indebtedness for graduates in the country behind Thomas Jefferson in San Diego. So, um, you know, there's can be an argument made that even if financially a school could survive, that maybe it should not. You mentioned a couple of other schools that are identified by that group law school transparency in California as being sort of also on the verge of potentially having the same fate. Um, have you spoken to folks from other smaller California law schools? And, you know, if they are sort of if, if they're worried that their school might uh, might have to go this uh, the same direction? Well, Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego has certainly been in the news a lot in recent years. They've had some financial troubles. They've had poor um, student outcomes, their graduate outcomes, I should say, and falling credentials. So they are often thought to be one school that could be in trouble. Um, their dean, Thomas Guernsey, who will be stepping down shortly, um, he has said that they're in a much better position now than they were a few years ago financially and that, um, you know, they've worked out a deal in terms of financing their new building um, where the school's no longer um, in financial peril, at least according to the dean. Um, but they're certainly one that always um, comes to mind when talking about other schools that have had issues and could be in some sort of danger of not um, making it for the long term. One last one. Could you sort of bring me up to speed with, with Whittier? The announcement was made in, in April to close, but um, its effect was not immediate. I understand that they said that the students that were there currently would be able to, to finish their legal education. They just wouldn't accept any, any new folks. But it must be sort of a tricky thing to try to maintain a law school that days are numbered. What What, uh, what is it, it like over there now? Well, there was a lot of anger and sadness on the part of the students right after the announcement. They even, some of the students um, went to the main campus of Whittier College to protest the news. Um, and there's some resentment. We've seen, you know, uh, some faculty members had sued to try and stop the closure. They were unsuccessful in obtaining a preliminary injunction. But I know um, other potential legal claims are being considered and various new plaintiffs. Um, and it's been, I think, tough for the faculty as well. There's been some tension. Um, the college had hired a former financial official to help put together a plan for closure. Um, and then one of the professors, Nelson Rose, um, raised concerns that this official that had been hired, um, you know, was involved with some past incidents at the law school in terms of a faculty buyout program that led to a fraud judgment um, in Professor Rose's favor against the law school. So this outside official, Jan Lagoza, um, stepped back from having any role in helping with the tra transition. So there's certainly continue to be some turmoil. Um, the president of Whittier College says the law school will at least remain open through the next app academic year. And what happens after that still seems somewhat up in the air. Okay. Well, I'm sure uh, as it, this all develops, you'll be there to cover it. Uh, Lyle Moran, reporter in San Diego. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast to help uh, us work through this. Thanks for having me.
Thanks again, Lyle. Now we'll go ahead and move to my conversation with Professor Frank Wu from UC Hastings College of the Law. Very happy to introduce Professor Frank Wu, Distinguished Professor at UC Hastings College of the Law. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Fantastic to be here. Thank you so much. So we should note, perhaps at, at the outset, that the subject matter that we're going to walk through, uh, the evolving state of legal education, is is one that you've sort of lived at the center of for several years now. You spent five years as Hastings Dean from 2010 to 2015. Um, and in that time, as we'll speak about, you made what at the time I think was regarded as a pretty bold and perhaps controversial decision to reduce the size of your, your law school admitted class. And then before that, I think you were the, the dean at Wayne State in Detroit for a few years. So you've had a sort of a front row seat here at the evolving state of the legal job market and legal education. So I'm happy to have you here to to speak about it. And as I understand, also, you you just mo- moments ago spoke at a, an event in Minneapolis about this, this very topic, correct? That's right. You know, I've been uh, blogging about and writing about legal education uh, since the so-called crisis began. And when I first started, I said uh, to the PR person at UC Hastings, he encouraged me, he said, you know, you're you're doing some interesting things, you have some ideas, Uh, why don't you start writing about this? And I said to him, nobody is going to be interested, nobody is going to care. Uh, Boy, was I wrong. Uh, In the past seven years, an entire genre has sprung up on the web of so-called scam bloggers, people who warn uh, youngsters, do not go to law school, it will ruin your life. Uh, law school deans are just charlatans and conners. And then the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, every major media outlet, TV stations uh, started to write uh, articles, compelling, detailed articles, not always accurate, but uh, I think on the whole, I said this out loud, the critics are right. It's good uh, that they've shined this light on legal education uh, and subjected to scrutiny. And then Bar Association, the ABA, California Bar Association, the New York Bar Association, and on and on and on. Everybody's wringing their hands and wondering, what do we do? So legal education now uh, has uh, become the whipping boy, the symbol of everything wrong with higher education more generally. I was uh, just moments ago at the annual convention of the Minnesota Bar uh, in the Twin Cities, Uh, talking uh, about these very issues with a panel of experts uh, because uh, it's of such concern. And so it is of uh, such interest uh, to people now, understandably, because legal education was once thought of as uh, the be-all and end-all. It had a luster to it, right? Everyone would say, well, you can always go to law school. You should always think about law school. And law school was sold as uh, the ticket, to the upper middle class. And if you were a liberal arts major, you were bright, you tested well, uh, ambitious, but you didn't quite know uh, what to do next, uh, people said, go to law school. You can do anything uh, after you go to law school. And that turns out not to be quite true. And so legal education has had this fall from grace is one way to think about it. I would say, though, that legal education is not unique. So everything that I say about legal education is, on the one hand, just the application of the same economic principles that apply to every other type of business venture, whether you're looking at manufacturing, whether you're looking at the newspaper business, everything obeys economic rules of supply and demand. And to say legal education 
and law schools, it's a business. Academics balk at that. Uh, some of my uh, colleagues become very angry. They, they think I'm demeaning the value of what they do, but I'm not. I'm making an observation that outside of legal education, some of the things that I say that sound radical inside law schools, when I talk to law firm partners, they shrug and they say, you're not really saying anything original. All, all you're saying is there is a certain uh, demand and there's a certain supply and when one moves in one direction the other moves in the other direction and i don't take that negatively i say exactly that's right these are general economic principles and they've affected every type of business one way to think about this is we're like newspapers uh, and newspapers have been disrupted by the internet uh, and by the decline in revenue from classified because of Craigslist. And people probably don't even remember now, but there'd be a dozen pages in the paper every single day in tiny, tiny print listing everything from lawnmowers uh, to houses to cars for sale to job openings. That's all gone. Now, what does this have to do with law schools? Well, there might still be some people out there thinking, oh, maybe newspapers will bounce back. But most of us have concluded, no, this is a structural change. What I mean by that is it's the whole market. It's not one newspaper. It's not 10 newspapers. It's every newspaper. It's the whole business model. So uh, you have to innovate. And the same thing is true of law schools. We, we have to adapt. Law schools also suffer the problems that we see in both higher education and law firms. Everything that we say about legal education, we could say about liberal arts education, all of the same questions uh, could be asked, all the same answers are demanded. So when we talk about the problems, when we talk about potential remedies, uh, when uh, we wonder about return on investment for legal education, we could say that about liberal arts education. When uh, we wonder about career opportunities for law school graduates, we could say the same about liberal arts graduates. Uh, when we ask, uh, what's the point of it? What's the purpose? Why is it so expensive? All of that can be transferred from legal education to liberal arts. And questions about the sustainability of the institutions, of the business ventures, which we ask about law schools, we can ask those about liberal arts colleges, too. We also face uh, the same issues that law firms face. The law firm business model, the high-end elite law firm uh, that bills on an hourly rate for its services, that's imperiled. There isn't enough client uh, demand, and the client demand that is there includes demands to hold down costs. Legal practice can be commodified, and people used to believe that lawyers had some type of magic knowledge that you had to pay a premium for. That's why legal education and uh, legal practice could charge a premium. They could pass that cost along because the technical knowledge uh, that people who are members of the bar had was rare. Uh, it was not readily accessible, uh, and uh, people thought that you could not commodify it, turn it into something that could be bought and sold and measured uh, by units and where what you bought from one vendor would be approximately the same as what you would buy from another vendor. Well, it turns out, thanks to technology and thanks to other market changes, such as the glut of floors, you can commodify uh, what was once thought of as highly sophisticated creative work. 
uh, as, as you mentioned it, I imagine you're talking about things like streamlining and using technology to make much more efficient things like document review and things like that. Let me give you a personal way of thinking about this. I graduated from law school more than 25 years ago, quarter century. It really is hard to believe. So when I came out of law school, the Internet was an experimental defense department idea. It, it had not yet come into common use among consumers. So this is sort of the dark ages, but I'm really not all that old. This is within my lifetime. So I, I graduated from law school, went to work uh, with a, a major law firm. And if you were a junior associate, there was a good chance that if you litigated, you would do discovery, document review. So what that would mean is you would go from your office on the 28th floor down to a windowless floor uh, where the rent was cheaper, and there would be a room with 10 or 12 other junior associates like you, and box after box, banker boxes, filled with pieces of paper, actual hard copy paper, and people would have uh, highlighters, post-it notes, and bait stamps, uh, and you would sit down there an entire day, a whole week, the rest of the month. You might be on a big case down there for multiple months reading document after document after document looking for key words and concepts. Now, uh, from the law firm's perspective, this was where tremendous revenue was made because on a bet the company case that might be litigated for a decade, you might be in discovery for half a decade and with 10 to 12 associates working around the clock on this, the firm could be billing a million dollars a month on discovery, if not a million a month, certainly a million a year. 25 years later, you have a scanner, you have keyword searches, you have outsourcing, you have paralegals, and the work that took 10 associates 10 months can be done in one day by machines and paralegals uh, and documents uh, that are stored in the cloud and the results delivered uh, on a disk uh, for some further review of a handful of additional documents. From the client's perspective, this is great because the cost has gone way down, the efficiency has gone way up, but from the perspective of the service provider, this is terrible. One of the main sources of revenue is gone. So this is a change that's permanent. Uh, it, it We're never bouncing back. Discovery, the old-fashioned discovery done with paper documents uh, by a platoon of, of associates, uh, that is from a bygone era. Before we get into speaking about the closure of, of Whittier Law School, which seems like has sort of surged the, the interest again in this topic of the evolution of legal education, I, I did want to talk about the decision that you made in, in 2012 to cut the admission uh, admitted class by about 20% at your school when you were the dean at, at Hastings. Um, are, are those broad forces in the, the legal employment world, were they the preeminent driver of that decision? What what all went into it at, at the time? Because, uh, well, since then, other schools have sort of either voluntarily or involuntarily shrunk their size of their admitted classes. That wasn't going on a whole lot back then, right? That's right. So 
I made a decision as the chancellor and dean of University of California Hastings College of Law to voluntarily, proactively, according to a strategic plan, reduce class size by an unprecedented 25% all at once. So this was not incremental. We just went down like that. And I managed to balance the budget uh, for five successive years uh, after that. Let me offer a little bit of background first. University of California Hastings College of Law, uh, founded uh, in 1878, is unique in the true sense of the word. And its unique structure gave us an ability to act faster and also compelled us to do so. There are about 200 to 205 ABA accredited law schools in the U.S., about 185 to not quite 190 of them are embedded. So these are law schools that are, in budget terms and governance terms, inside something bigger than themselves. It's a college, it's a university, it might be public, it might be private. That, that's the conventional model. But when UC Hastings was started, it was not uncommon to start a law school. Not a law school associated with a college or university, just a law school. People started medical schools, architecture schools, pharmacy schools, art schools, various types of schools that were just schools that stood alone. So these are called either standalone law schools or independent law schools. University of California Hastings College of Law is the only, the only ABA accredited independent law school that is public. It is associated with the University of California system, but it has its own budget its own state appropriation, its own governing board. The advantage of that is it means that when I, as chancellor of the whole campus and dean of the law school, which really is the same thing because the campus has nothing on it except the law school, wanted to advance this idea, it did have to be approved by the board and we needed faculty buy-in, but it did not have to run through a university bureaucracy with a provost, a president, with other departments and schools and so on. So that enabled us uh, to move fast. It also meant that since the University of California Hastings does not receive money from the University of California system, that we have nobody to ask to subsidize us or to borrow money from. So my peers who were deans of embedded law schools uh, had the disadvantage of, of bureaucracy, but the advantage of a deep pocket uh, of someone else in a central administration uh, in another building right on the same campus. Right. The decision we made actually started in 2010 when I started. I served about five and a half years, and I, I came to UC Hastings just as the downturn had started. And uh, I, I want to be clear, this was not my decision alone. This was a decision of many stakeholders. It required buy-in. And it was a decision that... Uh, was made based on the data, based on evidence, based on facts. I'm not a genius. I'm not a saint. I'm not a radical. I just looked at the numbers, and it was apparent that we faced a difficult choice. And uh, I did make a bet. My bet was this was structural change, and it was a trend. Uh, that this is where we were headed. It wasn't an anomaly, a blip, or a cycle. And it turned out that that bet is correct, uh, because year after year after year, there have been double-digit declines, unprecedented in the history of 
legal education in the applicant volume and in particular the strongest candidates uh, appear to be staying away from law school. So this isn't just one law school. This is all of legal education in the United States is facing this because uh, there aren't enough lawyer jobs that meet the expectations of incoming students. There is still huge demand for legal services, and we can talk uh, in another podcast about the unbundling of legal services because many legal jobs now are not done by lawyers. They're done by competing service providers. I'll give you two examples. One, tax advice. There's always been competition between high-end lawyers and high-end accountants, and some people are accountant lawyers. The new and burgeoning field of compliance. Compliance has been around for eons, but compliance is growing uh, at an exponential rate. Many lawyers work in compliance. Many of the people in compliance are lawyers, and compliance sits right next to law. It is intrinsically legal work, but you don't need a JD. There are people with master's degrees in mathematics uh, and STEM fields who do just fine as compliance officers. It's a white-collar, well-paying job with great prospects, but it's not, strictly speaking, a lawyer job. It's a law job just not a lawyer job. So uh, to go back to the main story, uh, I'm just someone who looks at data. When you look at the data uh, and you see that the applicant volume is coming down, that uh, the uh, number of jobs uh, for lawyers working as lawyers, not working in some other uh, field, uh, that that's coming down, you have to ask, well, what's happening here and how severe will this be? My sense was that the legal profession and legal education were like other fields and other disciplines where we see structural change of this nature. Now, it might be that it's both, both a structural long-term trend and a cycle. So people have said to me, well, won't we bounce back? Aren't we bouncing back? And what I say is, yes, there will almost certainly be some type of cyclical effect. There will be some bounce back. But uh, these aren't mutually exclusive. There are two things happening at once. One is this broad economic change, and the other uh, is you do get small cycles within that. You know, I, I'm deeply influenced by uh, where I come from. I'm from Detroit, Motor City, a magnificent wreck. And the whole time I was growing up, uh, the U.S. automakers, who once had 99% market share in the United States and were dominant globally, and our parents, our fathers and grandfathers specifically, had a brand loyalty unheard of. Uh, Your father or grandfather was probably a Ford man or a Chevy guy, and they would buy the same brand and uh, turn it in after two or three years and get the latest model. Well, when Japanese imports started to do well uh, during the oil crisis in the 1970s, the U.S. automakers thought, uh, well, American consumers, they might buy these small, cheap imported cars that are fuel-efficient because the gas prices are low, but the gas prices will come back down and people will return to the almighty American V8 because, after all, buy American, they're going to be patriotic. They're, they're not going to stick with imported Japanese cars. No way is that going to happen. Uh, and we all know how that 
has churned out. So Toyota surpassed General Motors, uh, and now Tesla is gaining on them, even though it has tiny, tiny, tiny market share because uh, people who look are thinking that the mindset of an entire industry has not been to adapt and to uh, respond. They have not innovated. Instead, they've always been confident that there will be a cycle. Now, they're not wrong. There has been a cycle. So uh, before 9-11, the best-selling vehicles in the United States were SUVs, gas guzzlers like from the days of yore. Why? Because gas prices did temporarily come down, and people started to buy the Escalade and the Explorer and so on. So there, there was simultaneously long-term change and a cycle, and people who saw only the one but not the other uh, regret it. So uh, my point is legal education is the same, and the reason I think this way is because I'm from Detroit. I've seen this story. The story is you have both structural long-term economic forces at work and marketplace trends, and yes, you do have a little blip and cycle effect going on in there and bounces now and then. But if you can't see the future, uh, you're doomed. And it was not difficult to see the future. Uh, we made a decision. Uh, the process started in 2010. The decision was made in 2011. It started to get press in 2012. And at that time, people thought, I'll be honest, people thought I was a nut. You know, <laughs> what, what, what are you doing? Why, why would you do this? You know, you're, you're overreacting, you know. Um, how can you afford to do this? Uh, this is terrible. And uh, over the past few years, almost all law schools have reduced class size in some way. And the overall applicable pool has plummeted. It has gone down so much that observers have pointed out it's the equivalent to at least 10, more like 20 law schools closing if you add it all up. And now we get to, to present day with one ABA-accredited law school, in fact, closing Whittier, um, which, as I understand, is the first accredited school to altogether close. This is a, a decision by by the school to close. It's one that's been, you know, it's a, certainly inspired quite a, a range of different reactions among the folks that uh, keenly pay attention to legal education. Um, among those reactions are some, you know, chalk, some disapproval, I think some disdain, some thought that the school was managed poorly, and that's the reason it's closed. You you have voiced an opinion of approval. You have applauded this move by the school. Um, so I want to get into sort of, you know, why that's that's your reaction. Uh, so why why do you think this is the, the right decision? Why do you applaud the school's move? I applaud Whittier. It was a brave decision. It could not have been easy. I have sympathy for everyone there, from the students to the faculty, the staff to the dean. Uh, they did the right thing, and uh, heaping criticism and scorn on them would just be misguided, especially if we want other law schools to close. We should say, this is good, and, and if others need to make this decision, we should help uh, this occur in an orderly way with a teach-out plan and so on. I know some people might look and say, oh, well, if you had a different dean, if fundraising were different, if you had a better strategic plan, if you offered a different set of courses. Uh, in my view, that cannot overcome the structural changes in the marketplace. Here's a way to think about this. 
if you are a saddle manufacturer and people start to buy the Model T automobile a century ago, uh, you're doomed. You can try to hire a different president for your saddle manufacturing company. You can change the colors of your saddle. You can introduce new leather. You can lower the price. Uh, you can come up with a totally different saddle design and say, our saddles are the only saddles that work this way, but you're still doomed. Uh, and uh, that, that doesn't mean that every saddle maker will go out of business. People still buy horses. There are still saddle makers out there. There is still a need for saddles. It's just a need for 1% as many saddles as we used to have a need for. And the truth is the saddle making or, or the horse and buggy example always is used. And people who have studied this have pointed out some businesses that were doing saddles or horses and buggies that they did adapt that they diversified, they moved into uh, products that were similar, and, and they managed to change. So legal education can change. Fundraising always helps. Having a good leader helps changing the courses so that they're producing practice-ready graduates. All of that helps. All that's important. I'm not knocking that. We have to do that constantly. I'm just saying uh, that... Uh, if you face the type of marketplace changes that legal education, in my view, faces, uh, that uh, I'll just give you an example. Uh, swapping out one dean for another dean doesn't fix it and might add to the denial because the single biggest problem, in my view, is not the lack of jobs. Though that's a huge problem. It's not the expectations of legal education, though that's a huge problem. The single biggest problem facing legal education, above all, is denial. It's the sense, no, these aren't real problems. People like Wu are just exaggerating this. This, too, will pass. Let's just wait it out. Uh, and that won't work. We we live uh, in an economy and in an era where uh, disruption is the norm, where the technological change, we can hardly keep up with it. And even if you're into gadgets and the latest, it's dizzying and it's crazy. Why would anyone think that legal education gets to be insulated from this? Legal education is, and others have observed this, I think they're right. Legal education is more or less recognizable to people who graduated 50 years ago. And if Christopher Columbus Langdell, who invented the case method at Harvard, came back to life and strolled into a first-year classroom, he could participate meaningfully in the Socratic dialogue that he introduced and in the case method. Yes, the cases have changed. People use PowerPoint and clickers, and there have been some pedagogical changes. But by and large, the delivery of legal education is structured the way it was 50 years ago, almost the way it was 100 years ago. So I ask you this question, and it's not actually a rhetorical question. I'd be interested if someone had uh, an answer, a good example. What other industry could you name that has more or less stood still for a century? 
Yeah, I mean, from my time in the law school classroom, it seems like it's the sort of um, educational setting that almost really relishes in its relation to the past. The fact that you know you can cite back to common law from centuries ago, there seems to be some uh, nostalgia about the fact that you can. It, it hasn't changed that much. That's right. People want to go back to the way things were. Nostalgia is not a strategy. In some of your writing, you've you've said that with legal education. Um, through perhaps economic ups and downs, people have generally thought that everything would be fine, that the, the model could hold up. What, I suppose, had, had guided that way of thinking previously? Legal education, like legal practice, has been affected by three giant changes. One, technology, like everything else. Two, supply and demand. There are too many lawyers relative to the demand for legal services performed by lawyers versus legal services that can be unbundled and performed by other professionals. And three, the genius of clients and in-house counsel. Because uh, in-house counsel as a role has risen, and in-house counsel generally come from private law firms, that coupled with the supply and demand means that sophisticated in-house counsel now can commodify legal work. They can take uh, tasks that used to command a premium in price, and they can negotiate and say, we need this done repeatedly, and we can assess even litigation. Through big data, they can look and they can say, well, with 10 years of this product on the markets at X number of units sold, we experience Y number of lawsuits per year, and those lawsuits tend to have litigation costs of Z and with this type of settlement on average. So we can project this out and we can go to a law firm and say, tell you what, uh, you have offices in every major metropolitan area. We've looked at our legal needs over the past 10 years with respect to this product. We'd like you to defend all of the product defect cases. And we can tell you uh, that we will guarantee this particular amount of billings, but we're also going to cap it. We're not going to pay more than this other amount. And so the client shifts the risk to the lawyer. It's brilliant. And this affects everything because it means that prices now can be driven down for legal services. And even the most prestigious law firm, even uh, the name partner at that law firm faces competition from clients who are sophisticated purchasers who now will say, okay, I understand. You're a blue chip law firm. Uh, you're a top uh, trial lawyer. You, you have experience doing this. Uh, but there are another five of you in town. So I'd like all six of you to come and pitch me as general counsel uh, and uh, I have lots of business to dole out, so uh, I'd like to see what you can offer me. And so the the balance of power has shifted. It's on the client side now, uh, not the lawyer side. I am not old enough to remember when uh, bills could be sent that said services rendered. I am old enough that uh, we used to fill out paper timesheets in 15 minutes, and the partners who I worked for were old enough that uh, they would recall the days with fondness when you would send a bill that had one sentence, 
services rendered, and then it would have a time period, and then it would have a big number, $100,000. And you would send it to the CEO, and payment would be remitted with no complaints uh, about it. And if the client didn't pay the bill, the law firm would imperiously fire the client. That's not how it works today. Even the best lawyers face clients who say, I know you say your billing rate's 1200 an hour. I'm paying 900 And we're going to cap it, and we're going to have this creative uh, risk-sharing uh, uh, deal uh, because uh, the market uh, has changed uh, so much. Uh, and uh, that means uh, that the firms now have to rethink how they do this and it gets pushed down all the way to law schools. So um, the secret knowledge that lawyers thought they had and that they had exclusively is no longer secret. It's no longer exclusive. It can be bought and sold, that type of technical expertise. We're talking a lot about economic forces and, and practical realities, but I did want to tease out of your argument that it's a you know, good thing for law schools to shrink or perhaps close um, some of the, the normative strands in there because um, there's a couple that seem salient. One is that um, you, know, you sort of say that it's, it's, it's wrong for law schools to sort of entice young folks with a, a false promise, as you say, that uh, a JD will guarantee a secure upper middle class lifestyle. And also that law schools just really should not be in the business of trying to be a haven for some um, uncertain arts and letters grads willing to dispense with uh, you know, a six-figure uh, amount of money to attend law school. Um, could you sort of uh, elaborate on those points? And do you think that it's you know, the school bears some responsibility in making sure they don't um, bring students in um, and have them then sent out into the world and feel like they kind of got a, a raw deal? Absolutely. I'm on the side of students. Uh, students sometimes see themselves as consumers now, and they say so. And many faculty members balk at that, and they say, oh, that's terrible that students see themselves as consumers. My response is, why would we blame students for seeing themselves as consumers? We're asking them to pay $50,000 a year for the privilege of listening to us. Of course they see themselves as consumers. Uh, and uh, we need to be responsive because they are paying the bills. And when they point that out, uh, that's correct. <laughs> it is true. Most institutions are uh, dependent on uh, tuition. That's where they get the revenue. Uh, and uh, that means that the students provide uh, the budget. That wasn't true even a generation ago. At schools like UC Hastings, uh, which I headed, five out of six dollars from the budget came from the state. Now it's about one out of six. It's flipped upside down. So it's entirely different uh, if uh, the state is willing to subsidize public higher education. But uh, that's changed, uh, and I have no expectation that it's going to change back anytime soon. Look, I I'm all about access to higher education. My whole career has been dedicated uh, to promoting access. Most of my career as a law professor was at Howard University, the nation's leading historically black school. Uh, I've campaigned for diversity, and uh, it's so important that we ensure that legal education in particular uh, is available to people of all backgrounds. The problem is that legal education is debt-financed. And at some point, when you're offering access, or you say you're offering access, that's not what you're really doing. 
What instead you're offering is a very bad deal. The analogy here is predatory lending. Redlining is terrible when uh, racial minorities are kept out of certain neighborhoods because lenders won't give them money uh, to buy homes uh, in order to maintain uh, the racial purity of that area. But uh, there's another phenomenon called predatory lending, which is when banks are too eager to lend money uh, to people, often uh, racial minorities, people disadvantaged in some way, where the bank, because it has data, but the borrower doesn't, because the bank does hundreds, thousands of these transactions and can look at default rates, whereas the borrower does this only once in their lifetime. When uh, the bank loans money and makes representations that are, if not over the line, if not outright fraud, borderline, and entices people to take out loans, knowing full well what the default rate will be like, and in some instances, a default rate of, let's say, more than 50%. In other words, this is a uh, worse than even bet uh, that I will be able to carry this loan and make the payments on a monthly basis and avoid foreclosure. That is a problem. So it's a problem when there's redlining, and it's a problem when there's predatory lending. That's an exact analogy with legal education. It's a problem if people are kept out of law school because of their background or uh, because of uh, their uh, finances. But it's also a problem if they're enticed in and offered loans where with enough data, if you sit down and look at it, uh, you can tell this is not a rational bet. And the students, uh, bless them, suffer from optimism bias. They think to themselves, I'll be one of the minority who passes the bar. I'll be one of the minority who lands a job. That's great. You couldn't get through life. You wouldn't wake up and get out of bed if you weren't optimistic about your prospects. But if you have enough data and you can reasonably predict, wait a minute, at this institution, half the people will fail the bar on the first try, and then only half, barely half, maybe not even close to half, will have a job as a lawyer. And you look at this data, and the debt load is $125,000. You have to wonder, you know, are we talking about access at all anymore? Or is access just uh, a, a lawyer's argument that somebody's making? And we've slid into predatory lending. Yeah, that is one of the kind of arguments that is made is that particularly with a school like Whittier, where roughly two-thirds of the class um, is comprised of minority students, this is an opportunity. It is a gateway to the legal profession. And some percent, as you say, um, even if it's a lower percent than the school would like, um, will pass the bar and get jobs as attorneys and, and prosper. Given what the market looks like now, people of every racial and ethnic background and every financial background who have a reasonable likelihood of passing the bar exam and locating a job, will be able to find a seat at a law school. We do not now have an access problem. We did in the past, but now there are still too many open seats in law schools relative to the number of applicants who are qualified and who are interested. It would be different if uh, we had one-tenth as many law schools uh, or 10 times as many applicants 
But right now, uh, there are plenty of seats for everyone who is qualified, regardless of their background or finances. This has been a sort of a conversation with a depressive tone a bit. Is there any optimism uh, for the future for legal education? Sure. sure. The demand for legal services will continue to go up globally. And uh, the demand for people trained in law will continue to go up globally. But legal education doesn't have to be a JD. Legal education can be certificates for HR professionals. It can prepare people for compliance jobs. Uh, it can uh, train healthcare uh, experts uh, to do uh, public health policy. I'm tremendously optimistic about legal education. My only point is that the JD priced where it is has run into problems. So uh, I'm wildly enthusiastic about legal education, especially globally. The the rule of law is what our diverse democracy depends on. Uh, We need it. We need an independent judiciary. It's what we want the whole rest of the world to adopt. Anglo-American common law with the sort of neutral principles that we espouse here. Uh, It's the foundation of civil society. So I could not be more positive about law and legal education. I'm just negative about the cost that's associated with the JD. Okay, well, certainly as the the forces and trends continue to bear upon the legal job market and legal education, I'm sure many folks will will stay tuned to your work and your writing. Professor Frank Wu from UC Hastings College of the Law, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Once more, that was Frank Wu, professor of law at UC Hastings, describing why the closure of Whittier Law School was a fairly inexorable outcome and, and a commendable decision on the part of the school's leadership. Presenting a, a different view now is Stephen Diamond of Santa Clara School of Law, who sees the closure as a mistake. I'm very happy to be joined now by Professor Stephen Diamond. Santa Clara University School of Law, who, uh, and prior to that, spent some time in, in private practice at uh, Latham and Watkins in New York, and Wilson Sosini, Gibberton Rosati, and Palo Alto. And Professor Diamond, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Okay, so uh, another element of your curriculum vitae is that you're a blogger about many things related to the law and legal education. And so, of course, the closure of Whittier Law School is something that was of interest to you. Um, and you wrote that, in your opinion, the closing of the school is, is a mistake. Um, for a variety of reasons that we can touch on, some legal, um, some just sort of moral, I think. Um, but first, why um, do you say that there could be a sort of a legal reason for why the, the closure of the school is, is, is wrong? There was a, uh, in fact, a, a complaint filed, uh, a petition for a temporary restraining order by faculty at the law school. And I think um, a review of that complaint gives a pretty concise, good argument for why uh, the college potentially violated uh, their contractual obligations to the faculty. So the faculty of uh, Whittier are protected by what's known generically as the uh, 1940 uh, Statement of uh, Principles Regarding Academic Freedom and Tenure by the American Association of University Professors, and those principles are integrated into the employment contracts of Whittier faculty. And those principles provide that universities and colleges that are signatories to the principles uh, to the 1940 letter 
um, cannot shut down an academic unit without going through certain uh, due process mechanisms. And in, in essence, those uh, appear to have been violated uh, by Whittier College, and that was the basis for the, uh, the legal intervention by the faculty and one of the major arguments I raised in my blog post. As to those due process mechanisms, I think that one is there must be either a financial reason to justify the closure of a school or there must be sort of educational considerations um, that that demand the closure. With the latter, you know, arguments have been made that there, there, the reason for the closure is educational considerations, um, including you know, sort of the, the lower bar passage of Whittier Law School graduates and the lessening job prospects. So why do you think that maybe that due process consideration wasn't met if they considered those things? Well, I think you're filling in some holes there on behalf of the college, which they themselves did not provide uh, in, in their announcement, which took everyone by surprise. Um, there's an antecedent uh, uh, issue, of course, which is that the, really the fundamental principle embodied in the principles uh, of the AUP is the notion of shared governance. That is, universities are not like private employers where the board of directors or the CEO is the boss. Uh, the faculty have a significant role in making major decisions about uh, about universities. They're, they're self-governing organizations, and this is a principle that goes back centuries, but, but it's really at the heart of, of the notion of the university in a modern society. And so at the Whittier, in the Whittier case, the fundamental problem here is no matter what excuse or explanation or justification raised by the university, they have no right, uh, to do, make that decision or implement that decision unilaterally. They have to engage in shared governance processes. So, um, uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, they didn't make clear whether they were attempting to justify the closure based on either financial exigency or educational considerations until after the decision was announced. And then there was later a public statement by the president, who interestingly has recently announced that she's resigning uh, of Whittier College, that in fact it was due to what they were calling educational considerations. And uh, But she did not point, as far as I know, to anything regarding the bar passage rate or the employment uh, uh, prospects of Whittier graduates. So there's no filling out of the, of, of the hole there. There's just a kind of blanket statement. And of course, that conclusion has to be reached jointly by faculty and the university. It can't be something that just comes from university administrators. Beyond that procedural concern or problem, you also uh, worry that the closure of Whittier Law School will uh, sort of shut what had been a gateway to the legal profession uh, for folks that might otherwise have a difficult time getting there. Um, could you walk me through this concern? Well, sure. Whittier, um, in some ways, it and this, by the way, was one of the reasons I was interested in paying attention to it uh, and felt I understood something about what they were attempting to do uh, with the law school and, and is that Whittier has, of course, its origins as a Quaker institution, and it still adheres uh, to uh, basic Quaker principles, although it's not a, it does not have a formal relationship with uh, the Quakers uh, anymore. Um, I, I teach at a school, of course, that is a, uh, associated with the Jesuit order, and we both share uh, a commitment to social justice. And, of course, we're not constrained by some of the uh, limits placed on affirmative action and other measures that are aimed at increasing diversity uh, in higher education and in the legal profession. So both at Santa Clara and at Whittier, 
there's been this longstanding commitment to social justice and increasing diversity. Uh, and sure enough, uh, both our schools have much higher diversity ratios uh, than the so-called elite schools uh, in California. Um, and uh, Whittier in particular had a significant um, percentage of Hispanic students, which makes a certain amount of sense given its location in Southern California. And so I was, you know, uh, I think understandably concerned about as a member of the California Bar and as a longstanding uh, member of you know, participant legal education in California, concerned and am concerned about the impact of a closure of even one ABA-approved or accredited law school, uh, given its significant role in in, in training and uh, in preparing uh, Hispanic students and, and other minority students to uh, become lawyers. So I just offer a, a bit of pushback. What would you say in response to, you know, the argument being made that, well, you know, obviously that it's a, it's a terrible thing and a traumatic experience for the students that would hear for the school to close and for perhaps prospective students of the school. But just because one school has closed, you know, there's still a, a large number of law schools in the state of California. And the fact seems to be that admissions or applications are diminishing. So fewer people are trying to get into them. So perhaps, in, in fact, the diminishment of access isn't, isn't that great. Well, I think, first of all, the reaction of the students uh, themselves indicates that there is there is continuing demand to to go to Whittier uh, and to be part of that culture, and that may be because in fact students with the kinds of backgrounds go to Whittier feel more comfortable in that kind of environment in a Quaker Quaker setting, and so the loss of that kind of school I think is something to be uh, is an issue of concern. Um, I, there, yes, generally uh, there is a uh, slowing demand. We're in a down turn uh, in, in demand uh, in the sort of cycle of uh, demand for law school, uh, for legal education. Uh, interestingly, and I tried to make this point in uh, my blog uh, post, there is a disconnect between that the current downturn in demand and the actual employment outcomes for uh, law students in the last several years. We've had a significant increase in employment levels. And in, in particular, and this is the really what what triggered my interest in, in just making the one blog post I did, which for some reason became controversial. I, I simply pointed out that the Bureau of Labor Statistics indicates that employment rates in Orange County have increased uh, 22% over the last three years, and that incomes have increased for lawyers in Orange County by 7.5%. In other words, I thought it's possible that Whittier was, in a sense, reading the wrong data and making a kind of cognitive mistake uh, by shutting down uh, in the current circumstances when, in fact, the market has begun to recover substantially. Sure. So if part of the reason they're closing is economic forces in a, a shrinking job market, then maybe, in your opinion, they should sort of ride that trend out if it seems to be be turning around? Well, the point is that the job market isn't deteriorating. It's improving. Right. Right. Uh, incomes and employment levels for lawyers have increased steadily over the last 20 years. Now, I recognize that there is weakened demand for law school, and the number and type of students coming to law school now appear to be um, having more difficulty passing the bar exam at the same level of bar passage as in the past. But Whittier has had a number of strategies in place to try to improve our passage, and their faculty made a number of very compelling arguments in the court filing about the potential for those kinds of interventions to help students get past the bar.
Of course, the bar passage question is another issue, and I've also been blogging about the way in which I think we have to adjust uh, the bar exam in California. Uh, but that's a, in some ways a distinct question or issue. Okay. I did want to, to, to note that reaction that you've drawn from that blog post about um, the, the Woodier closure perhaps being a mistake. Uh, some, some folks from around the country at the dean of Northwestern's law school um, offered a, a pretty biting response to it, calling um, – are saying that you exhibited hubris, I think, in your analysis and and saying substantively that it was sort of too early to, to know whether or not this was the right call or not. Um, what do you – well, first, were, were you sort of surprised that your your post elicited such a kind of fervent responses? Yes. How would you respond to that particular response um, of you know it being too early to really know uh, whether or not this was the right call? Yeah, I found it odd. Um, I, I'm not sure. On the one hand, uh, Dean Rodriguez, prior earlier in his career, of course, had quite a lot of experience in California. He taught at Berkeley. He was dean of the University of San Diego. He grew up in Southern California, um, and but he, of course, he hasn't been out here in quite a long time. I, I had no idea he uh, knew who I was or was paying any attention at all to uh, to the state of the California legal market since he's dean of Northwestern and. I'm sure a few Northwestern graduates do come back to California, but it's probably not a very large number. I, and, and so I, so it, I, it didn't occur to me that this should be of any particular interest to him. Um, he's never, we don't uh, do research in the same area. We, I've never met him. Um, as far as I know, he's never commented on my many hundreds of contributions to the legal debate prior to this. So I can only surmise that he has an interest in um, uh, this issue that I don't really understand. It, it, it may be, and I, I, I mean, I do think, and this is somewhat speculative, but I, I do think there is uh, some uh, uh, a kind of current of thought among some law faculty that certain law schools should shut down and that they welcome the shutdown of, of law schools. But um but uh, and th- thus they would be uh, for perhaps taken aback by someone who tries to suggest <laughs> that a law school ought to stay open. <laughs> um, but um, so I, I don't know. You'd, you'd have to ask him uh, why he um, you know made that comment. Of course, he was he, his his blog post was was inaccurate because I I made very clear that there was a, a simple fact that appeared to have been ignored by the college and 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 certainly by any of the public commentary which was the improving employment situation that you could find by digging into the bls data on employment and incomes for lawyers in orange county and he never contested that fact um and i would uh, suggest uh with some basis i think that he probably had not thought about that data in advance of his post so um it seems inaccurate to claim that i didn't add anything to the debate but you know you'd have to ask him what he was what he was up to yeah on this podcast our last guest professor frank Wu from uc hastings he also he makes a, the argument that it, it is a good thing for certain law schools to close because for you know a variety of reasons you know lowered demand and, and shifting economic variables uh, you do offer one other sort of more cynical reason for why some deans of law schools might 
think it's a good thing for law schools to shut down in your response to uh, Northwestern's uh, Dean Rodriguez's post. Um, I'd be curious if you'd want to tease that out. Are you referring to the question of sort of the accreditation standards? Yeah, exactly. Sure. That's also a potential, and I I did raise that in my response to Dean Rodriguez and to uh, perhaps as well to to Professor Leiter. Uh, uh, Dean Rodriguez, among other law school deans, has uh, supported um, the idea of tightening up on bar passage rates as a basis for accreditation. And, uh, you know, explaining it to your audience, it's a little bit in the weeds, but basically the idea would be that you have to get a certain minimum percentage of students through the bar exam successfully within a limited number of uh, years after they graduate. And, uh, and, you know, arguably that makes sense. We're a professional school as well as, well as engaged in, in academic, uh, research. So we have an obligation to train people to enter the legal profession. Although, of course, a very substantial percentage of law students use their law degrees for many other uh, career paths. But um, so obviously, if you know, one piece of, of assessing the success of a law school and whether it should get, you know, retain its accredited, accredited status from the ABA, the American Bar Association, uh, which is delegated that authority by the U.S. Department of Education, uh, uh, should be bar passage. And the, the tension is that there are students who will eventually pass the bar exam, but they're, uh, for various reasons, more successful after several <laughs> attempts to pass the bar exam as opposed to just one. And California has what's seen by many as the hardest bar exam in the country. And so when you combine students coming into law school with backgrounds that uh, make it more difficult for them to take that kind of test, um, combined with sort of the changing demographics of the market, um, you're going to get a circumstance where you need to offer students a chance to take the exam maybe two or three times after they graduate. Now, that's not an ideal circumstance. I want to say that, you know, because that 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 delays that student's entry into the legal profession, and that has significant financial consequences for them. Um, so obviously any school should aspire to get its students through the bar exam successfully on the first try. Um, but Dean Rodriguez and others have pushed hard for uh, or pushed for support for a tighter standard. California law school deans have been pushing back because of the particular challenges in California. Uh, and so obviously if a law school closes, particularly one that has a lower than average pass rate, uh, it weakens the pressure on the overall law school system uh, and weakens the case that they're not making the grade with respect to the ABA passage rates. Um, so, there, you know, that could also have fed into uh, why – and that might explain why Dean Rodriguez is, was paying attention to my post at all because it's, it's an issue, that is an issue that he's been uh, uh, significantly involved in. Sure. Yeah, I did want to mention another response that you got to your your post was from a professor at the University of Chicago, um, who I think if I can sum up his argument, said that, you know, even if the legal market does sort of improve in a general sense, the employment numbers for Woody are still fairly low. So um, they might not sort of benefit too much from that general improvement. Uh, and so, you know, what, what what's really so wrong about them just deciding to to close their doors? What was your response to, to his posting? Well, first of all, uh, 
we never heard from Whittier College itself that the job market was why they were closing uh, the law school. So he's making, he's kind of implying if that's what he, you know, if that's how he states it or thinks about it, then, then he has no basis for that. Uh, I know of no statement by Whittier College that they were closing because their students weren't getting jobs. Uh, secondly, the job market is very cyclical and, and there are ups and downs and, uh, Whittier may be having trouble connecting this particular cohort of its students to the job market. But again, the job market in Orange County, which is where they, where the market they largely serve has improved significantly. And then that, that suggests to me that there's a, there's a, a way for a, an institution to be successful. In fact, of course, Whittier College, uh, had all but sold the law school to another institution uh which and and for some reason that sale uh, fell apart uh, arguably at the last minute as, as far as we know um i you know the college has been mum about who they were negotiating the deal with but obviously there was someone on the other side of that transaction that thought they could make a success of the law school why they pulled out at the last minute i don't know um, and I think that's that's worth asking. But I think uh, if uh, if Professor Leiter was pointing to the job numbers, the job numbers show steady improvement in Orange County and nationally for uh, employment of lawyers and incomes of lawyers. And there's a disconnect in demand. And I think that's related to wider macroeconomic issues. That is, if you look historically, you do see a declining demand for legal education. By that, I mean Students coming out of undergrad deciding what to do next typically will push off the idea of law school when the market for the the job market generally is improving because they can walk into a job that's paying them forty or fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year and then think to themselves, why take the risk of spending forty or fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year on tuition for three years when I can get a job that's paying me now, right? So there's a it's a kind of counter cyclical effect. And we've seen this in the past in in law schools, and and I think we're in, in the midst of of that to a certain extent today, because the general economy is better. Uh, so even if you think you want to become a lawyer someday, you think, well, I'll, I'll work for a couple of years first, and put some money in the bank, maybe pay off my undergraduate loans, and then think about law school. It turns out the research shows that's not a good idea financially over the long haul. And as someone who delayed going to law school himself for more than a decade, I can tell you that's true, right? I would have been much better off financially. But that, that, that likely is one of the expla- ex, you know, explanatory factors that's driving the disconnect between demand from undergraduates for law school education and the fact that there are jobs out there for lawyers. I suppose then maybe one last one to wrap up are are the forces that most meaningfully bear upon this this question you know legal, the potential evolution of legal education are they are they all cyclical in your opinion such that you know things will sort of eventually turn around or is you know is there anything to the the thought that this is really just an inexorable linear trend and that law schools are going to need to change and some are going to need to shut down well, there are no straight lines in the history of legal education. You can look at any of the data, and they're all cyclical. Uh, there's no question, for example, that that there was a very significant uptick in the demand for legal education in, in and around the financial crisis. Uh, students who were getting out of undergraduate in 2008, 2009, 2010 had nowhere to go, and there wasn't significant economic recovery, and 
they decided to hide out in law school in larger numbers than we had seen in the past. And that, of course, led to a problem, which is the recovery took longer than typical for recessions. And so they were coming out of law school and not finding the same kinds of opportunities as they might have in a prior recovery. Uh, so now we have a downturn in demand, and I think there's been a significant reputational hit to legal education because of that um, sort of uh, excess of demand uh, through 2010, 2012, and now we're, we're suffering from a decline in demand. Um, now, at the same time, it appears as if we kind of bottomed out in the sense that the numbers uh, have, while they haven't significantly improved, they haven't continued to decline uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, in any significant way in terms of the uh, number of students looking to go to law school. I, the numbers for this year are not in yet, so I don't can't finalize where we are this year. But generally speaking, the sort of steep slide appears to have arrested itself. And now we'll see what happens over the next couple of years. Um, that does present and has presented significant financial challenges for many law schools um, because it doesn't help if you point out, yes, there are jobs, but students simply don't want to take on the risk of going through three years of school and then sort of predicting where the job market will be. Right. Uh, so, but law schools have, including my own, have made a number of significant structural changes to curriculum to employment of faculty and and non-teaching uh, employees, uh, a lot of restructuring has happened uh, to to uh, you know reduce the the cost side of the, the picture um, uh, for the schools, and that's allowed schools to to survive um, in the anticipation or hope that that this will be a bottoming out. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, I suppose we can can leave it there. I know many folks um, within the law school community are certainly watching with interest as some of those intelligent folks are also trying to figure out good ways to uh, to react to the changes that are going on. Uh, for now, Professor Stephen Diamond of Santa Clara School of Law, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Okay, Brian. Thank you. With that, our program for June 16th, 2017 is complete. Thanks again to both of my guests, Frank Wu and Stephen Diamond, and thank you for tuning in. It's much appreciated. I'm Brian Cardow. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.